right, the book of Philippians. Um, who was the book of Philippians written to? All right, and they're the Philippians, aren't they? All right. How do we know anything about the Philippians? Or maybe we don't know anything about the Philippians. Or put it this way, what do we know about the church at Philippi? All right, actually, we had a, a bunch of people at Philippi at one time or another. What were you going to say, Michael? I saw you nodding your head in your agreement. All right, Acts chapter 16. Um, we had a couple of months ago a whole series on the book of Acts, and I spent several lessons on Acts 16 because there's some good stuff in there. But basically, Paul ended up in Philippi because of the fact that as he was trying to uh, continue his second missionary journey, he was prevented by the Holy Spirit from going to the places that he wanted to go. And during that time, he had a vision of a man from Macedonia who said, come see us. And the region, region is called Macedonia because the city of Philippi was named after Philip of Macedon, or Macedonia. Um, he was, of course, the father of Alexander the Great, who uh, conquered the world uh, before the Romans did, but the city of Philippi was named after him. What is interesting is the city of Philippi uh, is the gateway to Europe. So this began what you might call the evangelism of the European world. Uh, before Paul was in what we call the Asian world, or the uh, Middle East, if you will, we think primarily of... Um, of Arab-type countries, even though at this time it was highly populated with Greeks. Uh, but when he moved to Philippi and began preaching there, he actually began spreading the gospel into what we know as modern-day Europe. Um, from Acts chapter 16, we know that when he first got to Philippi, that he was looking for someone to preach the gospel to, and the very first group of people that he came in contact with and he was able to preach to and convert was whom? Anybody remember? What did you say? It was women. Anybody remember the woman's name? Lydia. Lydia and her household. And they became the first, if you will, European Christians. And became the first converts of the church there at Philippi. A little bit later on, uh, in Acts chapter 16, we have the story of how that uh, uh, Paul came across a slave girl who was being abused by her masters. Uh, she had some kind of demon, evidently, that allowed her to uh, see the future or do something. And there was a group of men who had taken her into captivity and was using her to make money. And Paul came along and drove that evil spirit out of that woman. And the people that were in charge of this woman didn't care much for it any, very much. And so they had Paul and Silas arrested and had him thrown into prison. And so we got Paul and Silas in prison, and while they were in prison, what did they do? They sang songs, and then at midnight, what happened? There was an earthquake, and there was a guy that was working in the prison that his whole life was shook up, because he was about to take his own life, because he thought that all the prisoners had escaped, and um, Paul, of course, told him not to do himself any harm. And um, the Philippian jailer, Karen, if that's for me, tell him I'm busy. Oh, it's your brother. Okay, there might be something important. If it's from a family member calling, it's late. 
Um, make sure everybody's okay in her side of the family. But anyway, the jailer uh, was stopped by Paul from committing him suicide, and the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas what question? What must I do to be saved? And, of course, Paul told him to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he proceeded to teach him about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says in the same hour of the night uh, that the jailer and his family were baptized. And uh, that's basically we have, the, we have, as far as the main details of how the church was established there in, in Philippi and some of the events that took place. Paul did visit the church at Philippi again on his third missionary journey. Uh, but don't have a whole lot of information as far as the great detail we did in the first and the second missionary journey. Uh, one thing I did forget that because of of what had happened in the city of Philippi with the uh, people there and the thing with the slave girl, they finally asked uh, Paul to leave Philippi. He was basically run out of town that second missionary journey. And so we have uh, a church that Paul established, and we come to discover as so we start looking at this letter that Paul wrote them, uh, that um, evidently, as time went on, Paul developed a very close, close relationship with this church. In fact, um, as we're going to discover, uh, this is one church that almost evidently constantly took care of Paul, especially in a financial way which is pretty amazing because, as we're going to discover, the church really didn't have any money, hardly had any money at all. But yet they were dedicated to supporting Paul. Now, the occasion of this particular letter, well, is when Paul was a prisoner in Rome. Uh, this is one of what they call the prison epistles. Uh, there's three others. There's four prison epistles in, in total. Uh, there's the book of Ephesians that was written while Paul was in prison, the book of Colossians that Paul wrote, and also the book of Philemon, which dealt with the, uh, the slave. And um, so these are what we call the prison epistles, and this would be around the early 60s. And if you remember, <clears throat> when we came to the end of the book of Acts, when we were studying the book of Acts, uh, Paul, of course, ended up at Rome because he appealed to Caesar. And while he was awaiting being appealed, his appeal to Caesar, and no one knows what the eventual outcome was, we can only guess, but he was basically going to find out whether he was going to be put to death or he was going to be set free. But the whole time he was there, do you remember from our study of the book of Acts what his situation was, his living situation? Or he was under house arrest? Or he lived, he lived somewhere near the palace. He had, he had access to the palace guard. Well, but the, here's the thing about him, though. He had somebody with him all the time. He had a guard chained to him 24 hours a day. So <clears throat> he had, it's not the typical prison where you throw somebody in a, in a dungeon and, and feed them crusty bread and water. He had the ability for people to come and see him and what, that kind of thing, and he probably wasn't starving to death. But he also was in chains the entire time. And um, when, I don't know what kind of shift the Roman soldiers worked, but after one worked 12 hours, another Roman soldier would come in, and they'd take off the chain off of the Roman soldier and put it back on the new one. I mean, this happened whatever Paul did. When he slept, uh, when he ate, when he took care of bodily functions, when he took care of everything, there was always a guard chain to him, which is kind of significant that um, 
Here's a man who is writing this letter, and I always think about this when I picture Paul writing the prison epistles, that as either he wrote or he had Timothy write for him, there's some discussion there, but if anything that Paul actually wrote, I can hear the clanking of those chains. Um, because as he moved his arm, that, 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 those chains would clank. Or if he walked anywhere around the palace, there'd be the clanking of those chains. Um, and so you have Paul now in Rome, and he's writing to the church at Philippi. And there's several different reasons why he's writing this letter. First of all, he's dealing with something that the Philippian church did for him. They sent to him a man by the name of Epaphroditus. Okay, that's not a name we hear very often. I don't think you have any ancestors named Epaphroditus. You might have had some ancestors you called Pappy, but you didn't call him Epaphroditus, uh, which is also a hard name to spell. But the Philippian church sent Epaphroditus to Paul to help him while he was in prison. Like I said, the Philippian church was always trying to find ways to, to help Paul. And so they sent him a man, if you will, to help take care of him. And sent with Epaphroditus, evidently, a, a sum of money to help Paul while he was in prison. And so Epaphroditus comes, but lo and behold, while Epaphroditus is there, he gets sick. He gets very sick. Um, in fact, um, you know, could possibly have died. And so Paul is now sending Epaphroditus back to the church at Philippi, along with this letter explaining some, several different things, but one of the things he's going to explain is why he's sending Epaphroditus back. And don't be too hard on Epaphroditus. He was a good help to me, but the man's sick. I'm going to send him back to you. And it's not because he didn't want to stay. It's because I'm making him go back, all right? So you've got that going on. Also, the reason for writing this letter is it's like a missionary writing back to a church that helped supported him while he was on a missionary journey. Uh, even today, our young people who go on mission trips to foreign countries, as we have some in our church doing it uh, in March, uh, they, will, will, they have received uh, funds from individuals, and they have received funds from uh, congregations. And as always is the case, and I'm sure everybody does this, but my children always say, listen, if somebody sends you some money, you need to write them a thank you note. And this church has sent Paul money, not just this occasion, but on other occasions. And so here's a missionary writing a thank you note, if you will. So you've got Epaphroditus involved. You've got the fact that he wants to thank them for the missionary support. And um, also, this is kind of a love letter. He loved the church at Philippi. Um, you know, he dealt and worked with so many different churches. But for some reason, there was just a niche there, just a... Something about him and that church, he loved this church. Um, he had just a very special relationship with him. And so you've got this letter dealing with Epaphroditus. You've got it dealing with the thankfulness of the fact that uh, they had provided for his needs and the fact that he loved this congregation. But the main thrust of the entire epistle is this, joy. And I'm not talking about your sister, uh, I'm talking about joy. Nineteen different times in this book, Paul makes mention of either joy or rejoicing. Now, what strikes me in that is the fact that here is a man that is writing about joy, writing about rejoicing, uh, writing about how wonderful and happy it is to be a Christian, 
And then I hear that clanking of those chains as he's writing the letter. Here's a man who's in prison who's waiting to find out if he's going to be beheaded or not. And he writes this letter and it's all full of joy. Man, I, I have so much joy. I, I, and, and if you don't have joy, you need to have joy. You've got to rejoice. You need to rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. This was written from a man that was in a, a, not the best cir- circumstances in life. And the reason why he was even in those circumstances is because he was falsely accused. And the reason why he uh, appealed to uh, Caesar was because he didn't think that the situation would be resolved if he didn't appeal to to Caesar. Um, So someone might ask the question as we look at this book, how in the world could Paul be so happy, have so much joy, and and rejoice so much even though he was in the situation that he was in. Well, as you look through this book, not only, not only do you see the theme of joy expressed over and over again, but you also see the thought or the idea of the mind. It's all about thinking. It's what kind of mind you have. In fact, as you look through the book of Philippians, you see uh, that the word mind or a form of it is used 16 different times. So Paul's saying the secret to having joy, regardless of your situation, is having the right kind of mind. It's all about what's up here. It has nothing to do with anything else. It's what's up here. All right? And so this book, if you will, is, is, is kind of like a Christian psychology book, if you will. Um, not in a, in a sense of a, one of those silly self-help books, but at the same time, It's dealing with the psychological mind of a Christian. How is a Christian supposed to think? And his point is, if a Christian thinks in the right kind of way, he will always have joy. And that's really what the book of Philippians is all about. That's what we're going to see as we start going through here. Now, before we actually get in the book, I want to have a little discussion since we're talking about uh, joy and how that we're supposed to be people who are joyful people, rejoicing people. Give me some examples of some things that rob joy from our lives. All right? All right, first one I heard was what? Worry. Absolutely. Uh, Worry will mess a person up, and worry will steal our joy. And um, sometimes we... Just can't help it. We worry about things. And, of course, Jesus had a lot to say about worry and how that we shouldn't be people who worry. Uh, but worry is something that robs our joy. Yes, ma'am. All right. But thinking in a negative vein in what way? I mean, tell me something we could be neg- thinking negative about. All right. I mean, I'll stop you right there. So if you're having a problem of some sort, it's usually because of the circumstances. That surround you. That's where the problem came from. There are all kinds of circumstances in life that rob us of joy. But just like worry, circumstances we have very little control of. I can get upset and have a miserable day going down 485 because the traffic is so bad. They, all right. But Glenn, do we have any control of that whatsoever? There's not a thing we can do about it. The traffic's the traffic. Yeah, and speaking of which, too, we have no control over the weather. 
You know, we can, we can wish it was some other way, but the weather's the weather. It's like I've told y'all before. The weatherman gets up in the morning, he says, I guarantee you it's going to be a 100% chance of weather today. Doesn't he? But make sure we understand what we're thinking about here. We've already discussed that circumstances will rob us of joy and worry will rob us of joy. Are there anything else that will rob us of joy? Sin? Okay. I think all this is associated with sin, but I'm talking about um, take sin out of the picture and just, because we're Christians, all right? And of course, we know we shouldn't sin, and we know we've been forgiven. And so we're talking about Christians here, and Paul's saying rejoice, and again I say rejoice, but there's things that still are joy. And we've talked about worry, and we've talked about circumstances. Glenn, I'll look at you next. Yeah, if it was North Carolina or Florida, you'd be happy whichever state you're in. That's right. But you're right. Things, material things rob us of our joy, either because of the fact that we don't think that we have enough or we just simply think that uh, we need to have uh, certain things that we really don't need to have. Uh, I read a story one time uh, about Abraham Lincoln walking down the street with two of his boys. And his boys were just fighting like cats and dogs. And a passerby asked Abe Lincoln why his boys were fighting so bad. And he said, well, I have two sons and I have three pieces of candy. And both both boys want two pieces of candy. Now, they couldn't be content to have just one. One of the other wanted to have the extra one. And that's the way we are sometimes with life. We get so wrapped up with material things and those material things, though, they are nice, but they can steal our joy from us. All right, there's one other. Th- yes, ma'am. All right. And that has to do with material things. Uh, we're making some, we're using some broad headings to, to or some things that we could narrow down to be individual things. But using broad headings, we've talked about um, worry. We've talked about circumstances. We've talked about things. There's one other area that we haven't talked about as far as a broad area. What's the Roger? All right, but, but because it wasn't, wasn't the person they wanted, okay, which brings us to another one, people. People can steal our joy. That so-and-so did that to me. Oh, remember how we just got through a study of Esther? Oh, Mordecai could steal Haman's joy right off the bat. I heard a story one time of a, um, a little girl who came home from school, got off the bus, and she came storming through the house, and she just was stomping her feet saying, people, 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 people. And she ran into her room and slammed the door shouting, people, people, people. And her mother, of course, was concerned about her and went to the door and knocked on the door and said, honey, can I talk to you about what's going on? And she says, no, you're people too. And... Um, I think Smitty's probably gone through this sometimes as a preacher because I've gone through it. Sometimes you just want to say, people, 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 uh, because people will get you upset. Uh, of course, my dad said this in tongue-in-cheek, but uh, he always told me that, that, that preaching would be a pretty good job if it wasn't for the people. And, um, but my point in all this is that was tongue-in-cheek, believe me. I love the, the people of the church. But my point is that there are people who can steal our joy. So we've got... Circumstances, we've got people, we've got things, and we've got worries. And that about really covers everything. You know, you can narrow it down to specifics, 
But those are mainly the general headings. Yes, Mitty. Well, absolutely. And since he brought up Paul in the book of Philippians, what is neat about the book of Philippians is how it's divided up. It's all with the idea of having the right kind of mind. And so you start going through the book of Philippians, you look at chapter 1, and it talks about having a single mind that puts joy above circumstances. Okay? Then you get to chapter 2, it talks about having a submissive mind that puts joy above people. You get to chapter 3, it talks about having a spiritual mind that puts joy above things. And then the final chapter is about having a secure mind that puts joy above worry. So Paul's going to deal in this book with every single thing that we talked about, whether it be circumstances, whether it be people, whether it be things, or whether it be worry. He tells you how to have the right kind of mind to get rid of these things and have joy again. It's about having a single mind, concentrating on one thing. It's about having a a submissive mind, uh, being submissive to God. It's about having a spiritual mind that thinks on spiritual things other than material things. And it's about having a mind that's full of security. And if you have a mind that's full of security, then you're not going to worry. And so this is, like I said, this book is kind of like a a Christian psychology book and tells us how to uh, deal with the things that would plague us and cause us to have a life that that would hurt us mentally, if you will. Because if a person's not happy, if a person doesn't have joy in their life, they're pretty miserable people. And of all the people on the face of the earth, we should be the happiest people on the face of the earth. And Paul wants to bring that out in this particular uh, book. But before we actually get into the text, any uh, questions or comments? Absolutely. Uh, one, of the, one of the devil's chief weapons is worry. Because if he can get you to give up on God, um, then he can get you to, I mean, he's done what he wants to do. And so um, I think it's a very profitable book. And we're going to take our time with it. You may think I, we might get into too much detail, but at my age, I've about decided that when I teach a book, and I never know because of my age when I'm going to get to teach it again, I'm going to get into that book as deep as I can get into it. And I'll share that <coughs> deepness with you, and hopefully it won't get too overbearing. Uh, but I, I want to really enjoy studying these books on my own, even though I've taught them many times. And I've studied them many times. I've got to get a little bit of water. <clears throat> you notice in chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, that we see that Paul begins his letter uh, at the way that people began letters back then. And that is beginning with the person who wrote the letter. Now, here's a little, some side information, a little anecdotal information. Why in the world, during the time of the Apostle Paul, did they always write who the, pers- who the author of the letter was in the very first sentence? When we get a letter today, usually you'll say who, it'll be addressed to whom it's addressed to, and then you get to the end of the letter, it'll say, best regards, Jim, or love always, Jim, or scootily do, Jim, whatever. I don't know if you ever sound a letter like that, Janice, or not, but anyway. 
Try it sometime. But why during the time that Paul lived did they start their letters with the person who was actually the one writing the letter? Yes, Jeff. But don't we read a whole, don't we, when we get a letter today, don't we look at the bottom, see who it's from? Why couldn't they do that too? Do what? Hey, I got some mail today with no return envelope, no return address on it. I had to open the envelope to see who it was from. But here's what I want you to understand and appreciate. When Paul wrote a letter back then, or anybody else wrote a letter, what did they write it on? A scroll. And so when somebody got a letter and they unscrolled it and they wanted to see who it was from, all they had to do was unscroll the top of it. Other than that, they have to say, scroll down, scroll down, scroll down, scroll down, until you get to where the end of it is to find out who it's from. That's why uh, during biblical times like this, during the time that Paul lived, they would always put who it was from at the very beginning of the scroll. They wouldn't get something in an envelope. If you received a letter from someone, it would come in, in the form of a uh, scroll that had been tied up. And the person would get it, and they would untie it, and then they would ro- unroll the top of it. And immediately they would see who uh, it was from. And so you'll notice in every one of the, Paul's epistles, he begins by right off the front who the letter is from. And he does that because that's what people did back then. And, and so you'll see um, in the first four verses here that he is following the format that all letters took back then. You, you basically said who the letter was from. Uh, you then said who the letter was to. And then usually there was some form of thanksgiving or, or some kind of adoration to the person you were writing to. That was considered uh, the polite way to write a letter back then. You had, first of all, who it was from, then who it was to, and then you had some type of greeting, uh, uh, grace and peace, or grace depending if you were Greek, peace if you were Jewish, and then you had some type of thanksgiving, okay? And that was... Uh, um, Goes back, in fact, I was reading something the other day that they found letters with this particular format going all the way back to 65 B.C. So this has been going on for some time, okay? And you figure Paul wrote this in probably 62 A.D., so at least 100 years they've been doing this, all right? So that's why the letter is set up the way that it is. And you'll see at the very beginning it says, Paul and Timotheus or Timothy servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Now, we're going to go through all this in just a minute, but before we go any further, there is something glaringly absent in this first verse that Paul does in almost all of his other epistles. He didn't do it in the book of Philemon because it was a personal letter. But what is missing in his salutation? Go back and look at some of the epistles and look at the first verse. See if you can figure out what's missing. An apostle. Almost always, like I said, this letter's an exception, and Philemon's one other one that says an exception. Paul always points out the fact that he is an apostle. Now, first of all, let's ask the question, why would he do that to begin with? Why would he point out that he's an apostle? when he's writing a letter to a church. It's pretty obvious. All right. This letter is coming with authority. I'm going to talk to you about doctrinal things. There are some corrections you need to make in that church. And I'm not just some Joe Blow down the street. I am one of the apostles of Jesus Christ. 
I'm one of the ones that Jesus said, whatsoever you shall bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. I am one of the ones that have authority. When Jesus says to go and teach the world to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, I'm one of those guys. Okay? So Paul wanted to make sure that when he wrote to churches, they understood that he was speaking from a point of authority when he wrote these things. So here's the second question. Why not here? Absolutely. Um, this is a, a letter that it's not about doctrine. In fact, you maybe can find some hints at doctrine in here, but basically there's no doc- doctrine being taught in this letter. Um, there's no corrections being made. Paul wrote two letters to the church at Corinth. That almost both of the letters was dealing with problems in the church there. And this is not to say that this church didn't have any problems. They, they had some problems. In fact, he's going to kind of allude to one just a little bit. But that's not the point of this letter. As Frankie said, this is a love letter. He loves this church, and he is so grateful for this church. And so <clears throat> the fact that he's an apostle, first of all, uh, may not even need to be mentioned to this group of people because they're so aware of it. They know that he's an apostle. But secondly, he's not writing them from the standpoint that I need to prove my authority to you because this is about showing you how much I love you and showing you how you have brought me such joy and how thankful I am for everything that you've done for me. And so more than likely, that's why that is missing. And, um, of course, we're familiar, as the verse says, it mentions Timothy. And Timothy, of course, was uh, a traveling companion of Paul. Uh, the reason why he's mentioned here is because of the fact that, first of all, Timothy is with Paul in Rome at this time, and so he's letting people know that, um, that this man is by his side. But there were other people at it by his side at this time, too. Uh, Luke was there. Uh, John Mark came to see him. There were others who came to see him. But the fact that he mentions Timothy to this group of people is because of the fact that they were familiar with Timothy. Timothy was with Paul. In fact, um, uh, Timothy did a lot of work with the church at Philippi, so... Uh, that's why he mentions him specifically. But then he says, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ. Um, the word there for servants is the Greek word doulos, which carries with it a far greater connotation than the word servant. In fact, maybe some of your translations have it, but the word is literally slave in the form of what a slave would mean. And, um, of course, he is making the point that um, regardless of what God wants him to do, even if it means being in chains in Rome, he's going to do it because he is a slave of God. Uh, this is the same apostle who wrote the words of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20 that says, you have been bought with a price. When Jesus died, died on the cross. He feels that um, that bought Paul. When he became a Christian. He, he knew that Jesus paid the price for him, so he no longer owned himself. Instead, he was owned by Jesus Christ. And so at the very beginning, he points this out, that he is a slave to Jesus Christ. And um, all through this particular book, he uses this idea of either being in Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ throughout all this book. He names, keeps naming both of them all throughout this book. And um, can't guess why he was doing it. I mean, we can guess. We don't know for sure. It's just simply a guess. 
But it may seem that Paul was trying to point out a def- uh, several different things when he keeps using this phrase together instead of just saying Jesus or just saying Christ. He's pointing out the fact that we're dealing with a dual entity uh, that was both God and man. Uh, Jesus was his human name. Christ was his godly name. Um, the word Jesus is a shortened form of the um, Hebrew of Joshua. Okay, it's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Joshua. And um, I don't think it's any accident that Jesus was named that. First of all, God told him to be named that. But why of all the names did God pick Joshua or Jeshua uh, that's changed in the Greek to Jesus? Go ahead, Michael. <laughs> Very common name, but the name itself means something. The word literally means... We look up the word Joshua. That's Emmanuel. Jesus or Joshua means God saves us. Okay? And if there ever was a man that that was entitled to that name, it was Jesus because it was through him that God saves us. Okay? The word Christ emphasizes his deity. And just throw this out here. Why does the word Christ emphasize his deity? Well, Christ, or Christos, is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. Okay? And the Messiah was one who was sent by God. Literally, Messiah means the anointed one. The one anointed by God to save his people. And so... um, The idea could be applied to kings, first of all, because they're anointed ones. In a sense, they are a Messiah or the anointed one. But all through Old Testament history and prophecy, they kept talking about the anointed one. And so that's why Jesus has that title. He is the Messiah. Or if you put it in the Greek, he's the Christ, the Christos. Both words mean the same thing. One's Greek and one's Hebrew. But here Paul is pointing out the fact that uh, they were servants of both man, the both man and God person, the one that God used to save us and the one who is God's anointed one. That's who he was a slave of, okay? And those words, of course, uh, carry with it a whole lot more power sometimes than we think about when we say the name Jesus Christ. But when we speak the name Jesus Christ, we are saying a lot. Because we are making a mention of the fact that he was both God and man and that he is the one through whom that God saved us and he was the one whom God sent to be the anointed one. Okay? Any questions or comments before we leave that? Okay. Um, Then it says, to all the saints. Now, who are these saints? I heard noises, but I didn't hear anything clearly. Who said something? All right, it's the church. It's the Christians. Now, saints is a word we don't use very often. But it's a perfectly normal name for us to call each other. But we shun away from it. But it could, I could come in here today, well, hey, St. Frankie, how you doing? Or, hey, St. Fran, how you doing today? And um, St. Roger, St. Steve, I could just go around the room and call everybody saints. But... In our society today, we shy away from that. Why? It carries with it the idea that if you call yourself a saint, then you're some type of dun-dun-dun super Christian. 
But that's not what the Bible teaches about a saint at all. Every Christian is a saint. But there is a perception that somehow or another that a saint is holier than another person. In fact, sometimes we even use the phraseology, well, I ain't no saint, but I do pretty good. Well, if you're a Christian, you are a saint, even if you're not always doing pretty good. Uh, you're still a saint. What were you going to say, Julie? Oh, you had your hand up. I saw a minute ago. All right. So we don't call ourselves saints because of the perception it might leave with other people. Yes, Glenn. All right. The word there is hagios, which means sanctified or set apart or set apart for a purpose. Or you could even use the word different. We're saints because we're different. And where are we different from? From the rest of the world. But the reason why we don't call ourselves saints is because the history of the Catholic Church. Um, in order to be a saint, the Pope has to approve it, and you have to do a miracle, and there has to be some other things involved. But once a person becomes a saint, you can actually pray to that person and have, have them do things in your life. And that's why uh, they're what, they're what they call patron saints. That are, that, um, like, is it St. Christopher's, the patron saint of traveling? Is that what it is? And there's some woman that there's a patron saint. If you forget where you put something, if you pray to her, she'll remind you where it is. Uh, there's all kinds of different things out there. But that has led people living in our society today to put some kind of special status with that word saint. And uh, if you refer to yourself as being a saint, they would get the idea that you're holier than thou. You think you're some kind of whoop-de-doo. Yes? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there's nothing wrong with that because they were saints. Now, it might have been in your Bible for a different reason, but they were saints, weren't they? Uh, just like if you wrote a book right now, we could say this was written by, by, by St. Mike. Well, I guess to make it sound good, we'll say St. Michael. St. Michael of Indian Trail. Okay, yes. Right, absolutely. And, of course, you know, we might remove this negative connotation of saints if we just started calling each other saints. I mean, it's biblical. You know, we just say, every time we see somebody, well, hello, Saint so-and-so. Are you from St. Louis? No. Um, <laughs> yes, Jeff, we need to close with this one, though, because we've run out of time. Yeah. Which, by the way, it's interesting you brought that up. My article in the newsletter this week is about calling a preacher reverend. So you've, you've added to that what I've already got. Uh, Karen, do you want to say something? Okay, we got, we got to close because the kids are coming in, but 